I'm interested to know how many of you, by show of hands, how many of you have moved to Middle Tennessee in the past 10 years? 10 years, hands up. All right. Keep your hands up for just a minute. That's a lot of us. My hand's up as well. Uh, I would say maybe half the room or so. Um, that'd be about right. They say that the population here has doubled in the past 10 years. And um, when we got here about four years ago this summer, I remember thinking, I think I'm one of the last ones here to the party, you know, but they keep coming. And I want to share with you my first impressions as I moved here and drove around and got to know the place. My first impression is that among other things, Williamson County is a veritable paradise for upper middle class, wholesome, family oriented, conservative, music loving people. (laughs) And by the way, that man, I loved it. You know, like I am all in on that. You know, Jody and I have lived in a number of different places, and this is our favorite by far. Uh, What's interesting is I've kind of gotten to know the culture here and gotten to know the people here and and become one of the people here, if you don't mind me claiming that, is uh, we have our own version of the good life in Middle Tennessee. You know, we we do. It's uh, kind of defined by the following list, as I would describe it. Uh, The good life here in Middle Tennessee is is a nice house and great schools and a fulfilling job, a flexible work schedule, access to art and culture, good parks, great restaurants, beauty of the countryside, great vacations, the occasional celebrity sighting, which, of course, we downplay because that's how we roll. (laughs) And I could go on and on. It's like all these good things. Who says you can't have it all? It's Middle Tennessee, wholesome, family-oriented, southern charm, good life. And apparently that version of the good life is pretty attractive because they keep coming Uh, I've been surprised by how many people I meet that have the kind of job where they work from home or they've got a lot of flexibility in their schedules. Maybe they own their own business. Or the, the bottom line is they could live anywhere they want. You know, you talk to them. You know, why did you move here? And they say, Well, we came from California, or we came from Michigan, or we came from some of these other places, and and we we could live anywhere we wanted in the whole country. We did our research. This is what we wanted. Like I don't know if you know how rare that is. No other place have I lived. You know, do, do you find that? We researched everywhere in the country, and this is the spot that we wanted to live. And yet there are a lot of us that are there for this reason. Why do people keep coming? Well, the same reason that all of us raised our hand a minute ago, all of us that did in the last 10 years, is the hope of finding something good. The hope of finding the good life. That's the pursuit that we're all in, almost unapologetically, right? This morning, we dive into a new series Ecclesiastes, and it has a bit of a provocative subtitle, Unmasking the Good Life. Well, what is that all about? Ecclesiastes is a fascinating book. Um, it's relatively obscure from, you know, from a whole biblical perspective. I'm doubting uh, most of you didn't, you know, just on your own have your quiet time in Ecclesiastes this morning. Well, maybe you did if you knew we were going to study it. Uh, not many of you have probably heard this book taught in a church setting. Maybe some of you have. Uh, Here's the thing about Ecclesiastes, though. It reads like it was written last year, not 3,000 years ago. I think it's the most modern-sounding book in the entire Bible. From a philosophical standpoint, from a worldview standpoint, it sounds a lot like the postmodern philosophy that we are all a part of in this day and age. I think this book is particularly relevant for a culture that's feeling its way, pushing against the boundaries 
kind of exploring the best things life has to offer, searching for satisfaction, searching for fulfillment, searching for meaning, thinking we know where it's going to be found, and then oftentimes finding out it's not actually there. Does that sound like our culture? Ecclesiastes is going to be a clear voice speaking into what you and I live in, the fish pond that we swim in. In other words, this book is especially relevant for a culture in pursuit of the good life. So we're going to take our time through this book. It's 12 chapters. We'll be here for three months. You know, 15 or so messages that will be in, in Ecclesiastes. My goal this morning is just to get us started. I want to give an overview of the book. I have the opportunity, the, the joy really, of introducing this book to you. And I want to talk about the beginning and I want to talk about the end. We'll get the, 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 um, the bookends, literally, of the book of Ecclesiastes. And I think there's something there at the top and there's something there at the end. We're going to begin the series, think about it this way, with the end in mind. So here's how we're going to go about that. We'll talk this morning about three uh, subjects, three ideas. The author of Ecclesiastes, it's significant. There's some debate around who that was. We'll get into that briefly, but it's significant. Who wrote the book? Number two, the message of Ecclesiastes. What in the world does this book have to say? And why is it so relevant to us and our culture? And then number three, what's the meaning of it all? Like, what's the idea that the, the author at the end wants to bring us to? What's the purpose this book is in our canon of the 66 books? So the author, the message, the meaning. It'll break down this way. Verse 1 talks about the author. Verse 2 talks about the message. And then the end of the story, or the last two verses of the book, talk about the meaning of it. So let's dive in. Open your Bibles, if you haven't already, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Uh, while you're turning there, let me say this. Um, most people would say that Ecclesiastes is one of the most puzzling books in the Bible. You know, there's a lot of debate, which is one of the reasons that I like it. You know, diving in, how do you interpret a book that's not easy to interpret? D.A. Hubbard, who's a biblical scholar, wrote this. It's no exaggeration to say there may be less agreement about the interpretation of Ecclesiastes than there is about any other biblical book, even Revelation. Now, those of you that know a little something about Revelation, nobody can agree on what all that symbolism is in Revelation. And what D.A. Hubbard is saying, there may be less agreement about Ecclesiastes. Well, why is that? Part of my hope this morning is to give you a bit of an interpretational grid of how to understand this book, how to wrestle with it, some of the tensions that you're going to feel as you read this book. And then what do you do with that tension that you're feeling? So let's jump in. We'll talk first about the author of the book, right in chapter 1, verse 1. Ecclesiastes, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, there is a lot of mystery to who wrote the book. And some of you are thinking, what's the mystery? I know who it is, based on those clues. We do, we do get three clues here, but they may not be as uh, um, cut and dry as you think. Let's break down these three clues. The first is the preacher. What does that even mean? Don't think about what I'm doing right now. That's not the kind of preacher that they're talking about. The Hebrew word is kohelet, and it means one who assembles a group or maybe the speaker to an assembly. Sometimes it can be translated the leader or the governor or the president even. So it's someone that's you know, speaking to a large group that's been uh, assembled. Kohelet, by the way, when translated into Greek, is the word ecclesiastes. So if you've ever wondered, what in the world does that word mean? It comes from Hebrew kohelet, which means the assembler, translated here, the preacher. I don't love the translation preacher because it makes you think of 
preaching, you know, and some of us, some of you have some, some pretty negative connotations. No one likes to be preached at. Uh, some of the other English translations go with teacher. Uh, some go with um, the, assembly, uh, the speaker or maybe the spokesperson. So there's several different ways you can go on that translation of Ecclesiastes. Son of David. Now, that phrase by itself could mean any number of people. In fact, the son of David could be anyone in the line of David. However, the next clue, king in Jerusalem, does narrow it down a good bit. And when you examine the whole book, Solomon is by far the most likely choice of whose voice is speaking in Ecclesiastes. Now, why would we say that? The book literally reads like Solomon's life story. You know, there are some parts when he's talking about how wealthy he was and how he explored wisdom and how he did all of this. It is Solomon's story. I think it's almost undebatable that the voice being spoken, the voice being represented here is intended to be the voice of Solomon, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Here's the mystery. Why isn't he identified? In the other two books that we attribute to Solomon's authorship, which would be Proverbs and Song of Solomon, right from the very first, it says the words of Solomon. It has his name actually there. Why not in this book? This has led to a lot of debate, a lot of speculation. The other issue is the Hebrew is very different in Ecclesiastes than the other two books that Solomon wrote. So what do you do when it says the words of Solomon, but the Hebrew is very different, his name's not mentioned. There, there are three different cases in the book where it's actually a third person talking about Solomon. So here's what I think's going on. And, and, and don't like take this to the bank or anything. You know, I'm not that smart to have figured out a puzzle that scholars have been debating for a long time. And by the way, this is not just conservative scholarship versus liberal scholarship. Across the board, even within conservative scholarship, you know, orthodox evangelical Christian scholarship, there's debate. Some people think Solomon wrote it, others don't. Those that don't believe that a later author recorded things that Solomon spoke about, recorded things that Solomon taught. And in fact, it's interesting, there's a second voice in Ecclesiastes that's the voice of a narrator. And he pops in at the beginning, we just read it, you know, the words of the preacher, the, the preacher wouldn't necessarily say the words of the preacher. This is a narrator saying, I'm about to tell you the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Then in the middle, he pops back in in chapter 7. And then at the end, in chapter 12, he talks about the preacher, Kohelet, this Solomon. He talks about him in the third person. So here's what I think is going on. I think you have an unknown narrator that has his voice at the beginning, a little in the middle, and at the end. And everything else is the voice of Solomon. It represents the teaching of Solomon. It may very well have been literally Solomon's penned words, but we don't know. What we do know is it's Solomon's thought. It's Solomon's wisdom. It's Solomon's expression. I think it was like, likely written down later by someone else. Now, wherever you go on that debate, the point is the voice of Solomon is heard in the book of Ecclesiastes. I think that's clear. So Lloyd and I will be referring to Solomon a lot. We'll be referring to the writer or the speaker as Solomon because it's him. It represents his voice. Whether or not he literally wrote it down or ascribed it later, it's his voice. The only time that we will reference another author is like this morning when it's clear that the narrator is interjecting himself. Now, some of you are thinking, why do you go into so much technical detail about all this? Because it matters. Let me tell you why it matters. It matters that it's Solomon's voice in the text because of who Solomon was. 
So what do we know about Solomon? Well, simply put, Solomon was the most successful, humanly speaking, Hebrew of all time. Solomon was the most humanly successful Hebrew of all time. He was the wealthiest. He was the most powerful. He ruled Israel during the apex, during the golden era, the height of their power and their wealth and their influence. He was the the wisest. He had, you know, in our vernacular, he had the biggest house. He he had the biggest mansion. He had the most property, the most fame, the most wives, the most influence. Everybody around the world knew him. He was the most famous. Most everybody, even today, 3,000 years later, knows or has heard of the name Solomon. Solomon represents, think of it this way, the pinnacle of human success. Why does that matter? Well, if there was ever a guy who was able to get to the top of the proverbial ladder and look around to see what's there and shout down to those of us down below, it was Solomon. And what also makes that significant is Solomon was not a secular man. Solomon was not a pagan. Now, he went through a large part of his life where he kind of ran away from God. But at the end of the day, Solomon knew God. God talked to Solomon. Beginning of his rule, Solomon uh, asked God for wisdom. And God was so pleased with that request. He said, I'm not only going to make you the wisest man around, I'm going to make you the wealthiest man around as well. And so God just piled on Solomon these blessings and the wisdom to be able to interpret it all. So it should matter to us what Solomon has to say about all of these things he's going to be writing about. Wealth, work, power, influence, families, etc., etc. Solomon had it all. Now, when you think of the voice of Ecclesiastes as you read this, the voice of the preacher, the voice of Kohelet, the son of David, think of him as the preeminent human being. Think of him as the man with it all. Think of him with superlative wealth, superlative success, superlative fame, superlative wisdom, all wrapped up in one remarkable package. Was he perfect? Of course not. But did he have a shot at everything? Did he possess everything from a worldly perspective you could possibly have? He did, along with wisdom. So what is the message of this wise and incredibly successful human being? You ready for this? Verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, what you're going to find as we unpack this book over the next three months is that's the thesis statement. You already know the message of the book. All is vanity. That's sobering. Immediately, like verse 2, we've got a tension in this book. What do you mean, Solomon? How can you say everything is vanity? Well, let me explain, first of all, what vanity is all about. It's another interesting word, Hebrew, hevel. It literally means vapor. It means mist, okay? Now, again, the English translations go a couple different ways. The King James has vanity. The the New American Standard, the, the ESV also has vanity. By the way, I don't love that word choice. Here's why I don't love that word choice. In our vernacular, vanity means like, man, like I'm thinking I'm sharp. You know, I'm looking in the mirror all the time, combing my hair. That, that's not the kind of vanity that's intended here. You know, so look at some other translations and this will kind of fill in our mind on what this word means. NIV has meaningless. 
The NET, which is the New English Translation, and the Holman Christian Standard have futile or futility. The Amplified kind of puts everything together, as it typically does, and it says, vapor of vapors and futility of futilities. I think that's actually helpful. Vapor of vapor, futility of futilities. The idea is something that's temporal and almost weightless. It doesn't have any substance to it. So I brought an illustration to show you. All right, now I've got something in this water bottle, right? If I were to drink it, it would refresh me. Of course, that would kind of be a little bit gross. I don't know where this came from. I got it from my wife this morning, you know? But here's what I'm going to do with it. Instead, I'm going to spray the mist. Now, I can see this, and just as I'm looking, it's gone. I'm going to spray the mist. Now, I can, I can almost feel it, but not really. It's just there, but it's not. And then it's gone in about five seconds. Anything that I would spray with the mist might feel moist. It's going to dry in, a, in maybe a minute and a half or so. It's just vapor. It's just mist. So what Solomon is doing is like, everything is here and then it's gone. Everything has substance and then nothingness. It's vanity. It's meaningless. It's here and it's gone. So when you hear this word vanity, and you'll hear it all throughout the book, I want you to think of a mist. Think of vapor. Think of something that hardly has substance. It's just there and then it's not. Now, when he says all is vanity, he means all is vanity. He doesn't leave anything out. Throughout the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes, he applies the term vanity to the following things. Wealth, work, wisdom, that's surprising. Pleasure, fame, youth, long life, political power, large families, hobbies, laughter, drink, possessions, sex, honor, children, even righteous living. Solomon, what do you mean righteous living is meaningless? What do you mean all these things are vanity. There's some good things in that list. One of the remarkable things about Ecclesiastes is Solomon consistently pushes past where you and I are comfortable him going. Like he's exploring everything in life. He's like pushing up against the edges because he has the power and the wealth and the influence and the ability to do that. And he's looking around and he's feeling and everything he's finding, he says there's nothing of substance. Everything is a mist. Everything is vanity. And so he comes to some honestly, dark and despairing conclusions along the way. And so this is one reason why I think churches tend to shy away from this book sometimes. It's because it's dark. Man, I mean, it, it, uh, from a, just a human perspective, it's a depressing substance in this book. Not all of it, but, but a lot of it. And we need to be honest about what Solomon is saying there are moments when you'll be reading this book and, and you'll be thinking, this is terrible. Like, I hope he's wrong. Like, he's got to be wrong. There's got to be meaning in some of the things he's saying are meaningless. And so this is the major interpretational problem with Ecclesiastes. You know, you ready for this? This is going to be the tension that you're going to feel all throughout this series and the tension that Lloyd and I will feel even as we teach it. Here's the major uh, interpretational problem. There are moments in this book that are so low it's hard to imagine the Holy Spirit could have inspired it. Yet we believe the Holy Spirit did. And there's a tension. And I don't want to resolve the tension too easily for you. 
but I do want to help you with the tension because I think there is help to be found. Um, but just to give you an example of how low Solomon goes, at one point in time, the words of the preacher, the son of David, the wisest man the world had seen up to that point are, it would be better if you weren't born. He literally says that, and he doesn't apologize for it later. He never corrects himself either. It would be better to not be born. I, I hope that creates this, this tension inside of you. Can that possibly be true? What do we do with a message like that? How are we going to work around it? Well, we're not going to work around it. We're going to work in it. We're going to face it head on. Uh, I want to give you a couple interpretational tips before I get there, though, I want to unpack one thing we must not do with this tension, with this message. And don't miss the fact the key message in Ecclesiastes is everything is vanity. Everything is meaningless. That's the key message that Solomon has. What do we do with that? Well, here's what we can't do with it. We must not dismiss it too quickly, and we must not diminish it. We must not turn the volume down too much. We must not skip over those parts that are depressing and hard to read and then just lean into the parts that everybody likes. Like, you know, that song, for everything, you know, you finish the rest. Like, that's in this book. And some of you are like, what? That's in this book? It's in this book. Everybody loves that chapter, right? But we can't turn down the volume on the other stuff because the primary message that Solomon is delivering is everything is worthless, meaningless, vanity. Now, Here's how Christians tend to sort of navigate the tension that Ecclesiastes gives, okay? Some of them, um, uh, they, they want to they just say, well, that's the perspective of someone that's outside of God. You know, maybe this was written during Solomon's um, uh, apostasy, and, and you know, he, he wasn't really actually speaking what God would have him speak. I don't think you can get around it that simply. I mean, Solomon knew God. He was not a secular atheist like, like a Nietzsche. And by the way, Nietzsche's message is eerily similar to Solomon's message in Ecclesiastes. Okay? But the difference is Solomon's not an atheist. God is all throughout Ecclesiastes. In fact, that's what kind of makes it hard because Solomon's wrestling with God. And I believe the Holy Spirit is speaking even through Solomon in this book. So I don't think you can just say, oh, that's the voice of a secular person. Because what we want to do is we want to say, that guy just didn't know God. If he knew God, he would see that life has meaning. Not that simple. Not that simple. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to leave you without hope today. All right? But it's not that simple. Don't dismiss it that quickly. Um, the, the other thing that we want to do with Ecclesiastes is, is we want to say, oh, look at that poor guy searching for meaning in all the wrong places. We know where real meaning is. We don't ever go to um, success and, and fame and, and affluence to try to find our meaning. We never try to find our meaning in our work and in our families. Can't get away that easy. You know, we're not going to let Ecclesiastes not speak a word from God to us that will make us uncomfortable because that's what the Spirit would want to do. That's what he's been doing in my own heart as I've been studying this book. None of us are outside of this. One of the things I hope this study helps us with is understanding that you can't just Christianize the pursuit of the good life and expect to find true life in that pursuit. Well, what do I mean? What does it look like to Christianize the pursuit of the good life? Well, you know, silly example, but I think it, it, uh, it carries the point. You can't just slap a fish sticker on the back of your Land Rover and expect to find fulfillment in your ride. 
Uh, here, here's another example. You know, I, I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. You know, it's like if I could have a Land Rover, I'd love a Land Rover. But you know, don't put a fish on it. It's my point. No. Um, <laughs> here's another example, like literally using the, the, the key word of the book. A vanity plate is still a vanity plate, even if it says blessed. You, you get it? You get it? I think we, and, and maybe right here, and more than any other place in the world, and I mean that literally, we can fall down the trap of just putting a Christian veneer over this pursuit of happiness found in all these really wonderful, great things here in Middle Tennessee. And, and we're conservative, and we're Christians, and you know, we sing the worship songs and listen to the right radio stations. All right? Now, I, I'm, I'm picking on us, not you, on, on us. We have to be careful. As a pastor in Middle Tennessee, one of my greatest concerns, one of my greatest fears for us, honestly, is that we'd fall into the trap of thinking that we're living as disciples of Jesus when what, what's, what's really happening with many of us is we're simply pursuing a Christianized version of the American dream. Now, I'm not telling you, you can't live in a nice house. Your kids can't go to nice private Christian schools. That's great. That's wonderful. There's actually ways that you can enjoy those things and live in those things. Ecclesiastes is going to speak about that. But if that's where you're going, even subtly, even subconsciously, to find your satisfaction and your fulfillment, you need to hear the words of the preacher, not me. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. So let this book speak to us. Let it push you. Let it engage us here, good life chasers in Middle Tennessee. Uh, that's what we cannot do with Solomon's message. We can't tune it out. We can't turn it down. How do we interpret? Like, how do we just keep ourselves from, from, from falling into despair as we go through this very heavy, in some ways, heavy book? I want to give you two lenses by which you should read the text, two interpretational lenses Number one, read Ecclesiastes through the lens of the fallen creation. This is very important. Remember that the world that Solomon was exploring is a broken and cursed world. And remember that it still is. From Genesis 3 on, creation's not the way it's intended to be. Things are not the way they're meant to be. A, a phrase Solomon uses over and over is life under the sun. I searched all over to try to find meaning in life under the sun, and I couldn't find it. When you see life under the sun, I want you to think life in a fallen, broken creation, because that's what it is under the sun. And of course, we still live under the same sun that Solomon did. In the fallen creation, this is a very important point, life is no longer the dominant player, but death is. So if you're reading it through the lens of a fallen creation, death is on the throne in the fallen creation. And so therefore, Solomon's understanding, it's like, hey, death's on the throne, therefore everything dies, therefore ultimately everything has no lasting substance. Everything's a vapor. It's here and it's gone. And you actually see Solomon raging against death throughout the book. That's a good thing to do. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, Solomon realizes death is the one thing he cannot overcome with his military power, his wealth. He can't buy his way around it. Even his wisdom, he can't outthink death. It's the end to everything. Life under the sun. 
So in chapter 3, verse 11, and this is an important verse, he says, God has put eternity in man's heart. And from Solomon's perspective, speaking in the fallen creation, that is a big problem, men and women. God has put eternity in your heart, yet you're living in a world that's dominated by death. Why do you think human beings from the beginning of time, Christian, non-Christian, religious, non-religious, have always raged against death? Why do you think human beings are always looking for the fountain of youth? Why do you think we resist aging? Why do, why do you think we, none of us want to die at the end of the day? God has put eternity in your heart, but you're living in a land dominated by death. That should cause you to struggle. That should cause you to, to, to beat your hands against the walls of this life under the sun. That's exactly what Solomon is doing throughout Ecclesiastes. Eternity is in our hearts, but our destiny is death. So, from that perspective, it's all ultimately meaningless. Now that gets us to the second lens through which we need to approach the book. Number two, read Ecclesiastes through the lens of progressive revelation. Read Ecclesiastes through the lens of progressive revelation. What does that actually mean? Well, it simply means God does not reveal everything all at once, and God did not reveal everything all at once. We have a completed canon, 66 books of the Bible. They were written over thousands of years, a little pieces at a time. So we have this perspective where we look back on the whole thing, but as the books were being written themselves, particularly, say, this book, written about 3,000 years ago, God had not revealed a lot of things. There were only hints that there could be something after death. Like there were, they could only see through a, through a veiled glass what we see much more clearly because of progressive revelation. And so from Solomon's point of view, death was the end of the story. Now, there were some who said, you know what, I don't think God's going to let death be the end of the story. But at least Solomon, he's just kind of trying to be intellectually honest, I believe. He says, based on what God has given us right now, we cannot be certain, based on our current revelation, that there is life after death. If there is no life after death, everything is ultimately meaningless. It all turns to dust. So at one level, Solomon is exactly right. Life under the sun, i.e. under the curse, is ultimately meaningless because it is ruled by death. And so what Solomon does throughout the book is he alternates between, honestly, two very logical uh, places to go. Despair, you know, which is where the, the, the secular existentialist uh, philosophers will go. It's just like suicide is your only option. It's, it, if there's nothing there, there's nothing there. You know, why, why wait for the end? It's all going to be the same thing and nothing matters. You read Nietzsche, you read some of these other guys, it sounds like Solomon. Isn't that interesting? So, so Solomon dabbles in despair. And, and then he finds another place as well. Um, and, and the place he finds over here is to enjoy the good gifts God has given you while you have them. Because it's quick. Life is quick. So enjoy the good gifts you have. And there's a lot we can learn from that. We'll teach that. We'll unpack that. That's relevant for us. But there's still something missing Remember, read it through the lens of progressive revelation. We know things today that Solomon did not know. And so we read the book through that lens. Now, even though we know some things, we know that life under the sun is not the only life there will be. That would have made an entirely huge, completely difference in Solomon's 
philosophy here if he would have had certainty like we have certainty because of Jesus Christ. But before we jump too far down that way, we have to follow Solomon down the rabbit hole. And we have to pound our heads and pound our fists against the futility of life on a broken creation in a broken world. Why do we need to follow him down the rabbit hole? Here's why. If you don't go there, your soul will miss out on something important that God put into you, which is a sense of desperation for all things to be made right. We should get angry, men and women, at injustice. We should get angry when things are done that aren't right, that rob people of life and vitality. We should get angry and disturbed even at the depth of our own depravity and our own sin. Why? Because we know we were made for more. We know what creation is supposed to be like and what creation will be like someday when Jesus returns. We live in the middle. We are still stuck on this broken planet and it should make us uncomfortable. Christians of all people, I'll say it this way, should feel the weight of broken creation and long more than anyone for everything to be put back right. That should be our posture. There's another reason why you need to follow Solomon down this very difficult and despairing rabbit hole. If you refuse to follow Solomon down it, you might just find yourself trying to find life in things that don't have life after all. And then you will get to the end, and like Solomon, you will say, that was meaningless, that was meaningless, that was meaningless. I wish I had known. Here's your chance to know. Here's your chance to know. Is there something solid after all? Is there meaning? We'll get there. We'll get there. But I want to give you an analogy before I do. I'd say it uh, this way. Ecclesiastes, here's how I think it fits into the 66 books of the canon. Ecclesiastes is the clearest bell in Scripture that rings to mourn the hopeless state of affairs in the fallen creation. And it is a clear bell and it is a true bell. Life under the sun is ultimately meaningless as long as it's dominated by death. It's ultimately meaningless. Um, You might think of it this way. Ecclesiastes is a desperate cry for eternal life in the midst of an existence that is otherwise meaningless. Solomon is shouting out, there must be more. The same thing many of us are shouting out, particularly those of you that have reached the top. There has to be more. There must be more. Solomon is saying this. Um, let me, let me uh, give you an illustration that I think may be really helpful. Um, I'm not an artist. I know some artists, and I'm fascinated by the concept of negative space. You know, negative space is the space in, in a, a piece of visual art where there, there's, there's nothing. Like, there, there's nothingness in a sense. It, there's vanity. It's meaningless. However, negative space is actually not meaningless after all. Negative space actually defines your object, your positive space. So let me give you like the, the, the clearest example, maybe the most exaggerated example. You've probably all seen this. Put, put this on the screen, this, this optical illusion. Okay, it, it, what is it, you know? Is it a vase? Yes. Is it two guys, you know, staring at each other? Yes. Which is the negative space? Which is the positive space? Well, it depends on what, your, what color your canvas was. If you're painting on a white canvas, right, then the whiteness is the negative space. If you're painting in blackness, then then the the black is the negative space. The idea is the negative space defines what you actually see. Let me go to another other example. This one's pretty clever. Yeah, what do you see? (laughs) Is it the penguin or is it Batman? 
Yes. Yes. And then I'm going to go to one more. I couldn't resist this one. You cannot not see the hands, but the hands are not there. They're not, but they are. So this is the role of negative space. You can go ahead and take those off the screen. Here's what I want to say about this. Much of Ecclesiastes is like negative space. What is it there for? Just to make you feel depressed? No, it's there to define the boundaries. This is negative space. You won't find life here. This is negative space. You won't find it here. This is negative space. You won't find it here. I think the Holy Spirit is using this book in the context of the whole canon to draw our attention away from the things we won't find life and toward the thing that we will. So this is where we get to the end of the story. Turn, if you will, to the end of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I'm going to read the last two verses of the book. Now, very interestingly, this is the voice of the narrator again. All right? Uh, In fact, the narrator steps back in in verse 8. Okay, I won't, I won't read it, but we're going to read 13 and 14. Now, we've covered the author. We've covered the author's message, which is meaningless, meaningless, vanity, vanity. Now we're going to talk about the true meaning of it all, the true meaning of the book. Verse 13, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, that's anticlimactic. You're just telling me to be afraid of God, to be scared of God. That's not what fear means in this context. So take that out of your brain. This is not hiding under the blankets, you know, and praying for mercy, you know, because you're scared of God. Fearing God all throughout the Bible is an incredibly important concept, and it is in Ecclesiastes, and we'll be unpacking it as we go. Let me just really quickly give you two thoughts around fearing God. It has to do with relating to God the way you were intended to relate to God, which is a relationship of trust and obedience. Trust and obedience. So when you think of fearing God, think of trust and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way, right? Trust and obey. Trust has the idea of, I believe God that you love me and you have good intentions for me. That's not always easy to have faith in, right? If we're honest. Obey means because you love me and because I believe you have good intentions for me, I'm gonna walk your path believing there's ultimately something there. There's ultimately life down the path. So you fear God, trust God and obey God. That's what, that's what the narrator is drawing the conclusion, but it gets even better. Look at verse 14. For, here's the therefore of Everything. God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Now, we trip over this one too. Similarly, do we trip over fear of the Lord? Judgment makes us think of punishment. Like, oh, golly, I've got to be afraid because punishment's coming. That's not the fullest extent of this idea. Judgment carries the weight of righteousness restored. It carries the weight of justice brought back. Think about a judge. A just judge is not there just to put his finger on people and say, you know, I'm going to punish you for this. I'm going to dole out punishment. That's not the role of a judge. Now, he needs to do that. He does that for the purpose of bringing things back together the way they were supposed to be. There's been something torn in the fabric of our justice system. It needs to be restored. There needs to be 
restoration. That's the job of a good judge. Here's why this matters. The speaker, the preacher, has been wrestling with meaningless, meaningless. If death is on the throne, everything is meaningless. The narrator comes at the end and says the conclusion of the whole matter is death doesn't have the final word. Everything will be judged, i.e. everything will be restored. Everything will be put back right. Everything will be stitched back together according to the way that God decides to stitch it back together. Death doesn't have the final word. God has the final word. If God has the final word, death's not the end. Death's not the one in charge. Now, think of it this way. The writer is attesting to the fact that someday all will be right. Everything evil that steals life from us, death number one on the list, will be put down, will be dealt with. Everything righteous, everything good, everything wholesome, everything that's oriented around love will be redeemed through Christ's sacrifice. Now, the author here couldn't see how it was going to be done. He couldn't speak the name of Jesus. God hadn't revealed that to him at that point in time. He only had faith that everything was going to be put to right. So he was looking forward at something that we are now looking backward on. Here's what this means, and I hope this kind of explodes your mind a little bit. In the light of judgment and restoration that is yet to come, everything matters. Nothing is meaningless. This is what the author is saying here. God will bring every act to judgment. So what makes the difference between everything is meaningless at the beginning and everything is meaningful at the end? The first one is written from the perspective of a world where death has the final say. The second one is written in faith, looking for a world where death does not have the final say, but God has the final say. And we know that it was in Jesus, a thousand years after these words were written, Jesus overcame death by death. And he restored life by resurrection. First his and someday ours. And he will make all things new. Now, in the final analysis, here's how I would summarize Ecclesiastes in terms of the author, the message, and its meaning. Ecclesiastes is the wisdom of a remarkable human being who has a despairing message about life under the sun that leads us to hope beyond the horizon. Our hope is beyond the horizon. We have confidence in something that Solomon was not able to yet because we can look backward at the cross so, so think about Ecclesiastes this way. Here's another way to think about it. The negative space in Ecclesiastes shouts out, meaningless, meaningless. In light of death, everything is meaningless. And then an echo comes back from the other side of the cross saying, meaningful, meaningful. In light of resurrection, everything is meaningful. Now, we want to close our service this morning by giving you a tangible way to express the hope you have in life to come and even the hope you can have now in this life under the sun. But that hope only exists through Jesus Christ. 
And so this morning, we're going to celebrate communion together. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Jesus told his disciples as they were eating with him that the bread they were eating and the, the wine they were drinking were his body and his blood broken and shed for them. And so the elements that we receive today, a little piece of bread, a little cup of juice, are a tangible representation of the promise of life for all who believe. Some of you have put your trust in Jesus Christ for life long ago. Others of you haven't. I invite you this morning. If you're at a place in your life that you say, you know what, I, I see everything's meaningless. And, 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 and I, I believe that that meaninglessness, that empty cavern, that vacuum is actually pointing to something of substance. I believe God put eternity in my heart for a reason. I would tell you the reason is life in Jesus Christ who came and died for you in order to defeat death and set you free from an eternity of death. And he rose again so that you could have life. You, this morning, you can just put your faith in that and take the elements with us. So all those who have put our trust in Christ, whether years ago or even this morning, are welcome at the table. We'll pass the elements around, invite you to take a little piece of bread, a little cup, and just hold on to it. Don't take it yet. I'll come back up and we will partake together. Here's my encouragement. Everything else under the sun is a vapor. What is offered to you this morning is solid. Take it. Take it and be filled. Father, we thank you for this complex book that you have chosen through your Holy Spirit and through this human author to write and preserve and give to us, even in our context. I thank you for how relevant it is to us today. I, I thank you for even the harshness of it that will spoil our appetite for things that don't last. And I pray that would be the effect on our congregation as we study for the next three months. Uh, I pray also that we would find Jesus in the negative space of Ecclesiastes. I pray that we would be pointed toward hope that like this narrator at the end, we would cry out, there is something to come that will give meaning to everything here. We know that that's the return of Jesus Christ. We look for it in anticipation, even now as we remember his death and resurrection for us. In Jesus' name, amen.